Welcome to First Church. If you're, if you're new, my name's Chad. So glad you chose to worship with us today on this cold, cold morning. But it looks like we have a great crowd considering the weather. And I know we have a whole bunch of people joining us online as well. I just checked and we have Michael in South Carolina, Debbie in Collinsville, Eli in Denver, Kim and Mike in Texas, and a whole bunch of others. So if you are here on site, would you put your hands together? Welcome in our online family. Let them know we're glad they're joining us today. I'm glad all you guys are here as we're in week two of our series, Alpha and Omega. And as I get started, I just want to ask, if any of you guys have this problem, I have it personally, where I misquote song lyrics. Anybody else do that? I'll be singing some song and my wife and my kids will look at me and they'll be like, Chad, Daddy, that's not even close. Because I just make up my own words sometimes if I don't know what the lyrics actually say. I do this in worship sometimes. And the words are on the screen and I still say whatever I want to say, you know, because it sounds good to me. And let me give you an example of this. Like, there's this Taylor Swift song. You may have heard of it, Starlight. It's old now. I know that Taylor's becoming a little bit popular here recently, you know. She's kind of getting big time now. But anyway, this song was from years ago. And the, the line is, I met Bobby on the boardwalk. But the first time that I heard this song, I thought she was saying, I'm a Barbie on the boardwalk. And if you don't believe me, listen to this and judge for yourself. See what I'm saying, right? I'm not crazy, right? It sounds like that. I know there are other songs that people make the same mistake or make similar mistakes. Like for instance, this song by CCR. The line is, there's a bad moon on the rise. But a lot of people think that what they're actually singing is this, there's a bathroom on the right. And again, if you don't believe me, listen to this. You know what I'm saying? And since somebody told me that, I can't hear this song any other way. Like every time I hear it now, I hear there's a bathroom on the right. What about this example right here? This came from Matt Thomason, our executive minister. He told me that when he was growing up, he thought that this song, Rhinestone Cowboy, that the line by Glenn Campbell, which actually says, getting cards and letters from people I don't even know. Matt thought it said this, getting cards and lettuce from people I don't even know. And you know what? He's right. Listen to this. saying it's I mean I wouldn't mind getting salad in the mail you know that's fine that's great now Kyle who is our uh, facilities director now he's new he told me about an example and this one is a little bit of a stretch for me but I get where he's coming from it's a Garth Brooks song friends in low places and the line is I'm not big on social graces he thought for a long time that the line was I'm not big on sausage gravy okay so listen to this Okay. Now, I hear the sausage. I still hear graces. So it's kind of like I'm not big on sausage graces is what I hear, actually. It's a little bit of a stretch, but I get how he got there. Now, one more example. I'm not going to play this song because it's probably not appropriate. But there was a song back in the mid-90s by the Spice Girls, Wannabe. You know, I'll tell you what I want. Okay, I'm not going to sing it. But anyway, there's this line that says... Uh, if you want to be my lover, when I was younger, I honestly thought that this was the line. If you want to meet my mother, I really thought that that was the line. I was innocent and young, you know, that's what I thought, but I was wrong. Now, all these examples just prove that we don't always know what we think we know. In life, we can assume things that just aren't true. 
And we are talking about a book in the Bible right now in this series that I think has been the victim of more bad assumptions than any other book in all of Scripture, and that's the book of Revelation. People approach this book with rigid assumptions, assuming that it's going to answer certain questions and say things that they expect for it to say. And what if we've been approaching the book with the wrong assumptions? What if we're expecting Revelation to say something that God never intended it to say? Because one thing that I've learned in life is this, bad assumptions lead to bad assessments. And that's true about a lot of things in life. And it can be true about any part of scripture that you take out of context, but I think it's been especially true when it comes to the book of Revelation. Because people today either totally avoid Revelation because they're scared of it and it's confusing, or they misuse it and they abuse it because they take it out of context and make it say things that it was never meant to say. And so what I wanna do in this series is I don't want us to be afraid of the book and I don't want us to misuse it. I just want for us to dive into it and study it in its original context, to understand why God gave us this book in the first place. Because the book of Revelation is God's word. It is from him to us and he gave it to us for a purpose. And so I'm not gonna dive into every single possible interpretation of the book of Revelation and get into all the things people argue about. We're not gonna do that in this series, I just want to look at the overview of the book. Look at the big themes to understand why God gave us this book in the first place. And I believe that when you study the book of Revelation in its original context, why it was first written, you will find this, that Revelation provides unshakable hope in the midst of uncertain times. It provides unshakable hope in the midst of uncertain times for God's people. And don't we need that today? I mean, we're living in times that are crazy and chaotic and definitely uncertain. And what we need more than anything in the midst of uncertainty is hope. And that's what the original readers of Revelation, the recipients of Revelation, at the end of the first century, that's what they needed as well. And that's why John says to them in some of the opening lines to this book, he says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Notice again, we talked about this last week. John does not start off the book of Revelation by saying doom and destruction, you know, hell and damnation and all that kind of stuff. That's not how he starts off the book. He starts off the book by saying blessed. Blessed is the one who reads and studies this book. Contrary to what some people think, the book of Revelation was never meant to scare the church. It was meant to strengthen it. It wasn't meant to frighten us. It was meant to show us how to live under God's blessing in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of crazy and chaotic times. It was meant to be an encouragement to us, God's people. But then notice something else. John also writes that we are to keep what is written in it. And the word keep just means obey or to do what is written in it. Revelation was meant to be practical. It wasn't meant to be a book that was full of secrets that only an elite few could understand. It wasn't meant to give all these secret truths that the first century church wouldn't understand and that the church throughout history would never get until like 2,000 years later. That's not the point. The point of the book of Revelation was for it to be obeyed. It was meant to be practical. And so yes, Revelation does provide some stuff about the future. It does say some things about the future, but it never does so at the expense of the present. Because the whole point of the book is to give us a blessing, give us encouragement, give us strength and hope now. Because that's what God's people need when they're going through difficult times. See, Revelation was written to real people living in a real period in history 
who are going through experiencing some real issues and struggles. And by real issues and struggles, I'm not talking about minor inconveniences. See, there was this guy named Domitian, and he was the emperor of Rome, and he wanted everybody to bow down and worship him as a god. That's how you showed your allegiance to the Roman Empire, and Christians couldn't do that. They couldn't bow down to a man as if he was God. And so followers of Jesus in the first century world refused to do that, and they were being punished because of it. Persecution became the norm. It became almost government policy. And so Christians were losing their jobs, they were losing their homes, they were losing their family members, they were even losing their own lives simply because they wouldn't bow down to Domitian as God. They were really struggling. Times were tough. And the whole point of this book, the book of Revelation, was to encourage the church so that we would know how to live and stay faithful to Jesus while we're in the middle of the story. Because we know how the story begins with God. God created everything. And we know how the story ends with Jesus on the throne. But we're somewhere in the middle. And in the middle of the story, there's conflict. In the middle of the story, there's chaos and craziness. In the middle of the story, there's darkness. So how do we stay faithful while we're in the middle of the story? That's what Revelation is teaching us and showing us And that's why it's so practical for us today because we, just like those first century Christians, are still somewhere in the middle of the story. And don't we need to hear that today? Because we live in a day and age where we may not be facing the same pressures that the first century Christians were facing. I mean, most of us, our lives aren't being threatened because we're followers of Jesus, but our society is becoming more and more hostile to our faith. We're living at a time when people see the teachings of Jesus as a threat to the status quo. And so our world is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. And we shouldn't be surprised that this is happening because if Jesus said that the agency in this world, his agency that was going to fight against the dominion of darkness was going to be his church, that his church would push back the gates of hell, don't you think if Jesus said that, then Satan is going to do everything he possibly can to stop the church? And so throughout the history of the church, Satan and all of his minions have been attacking God's people and they continue to do so today. And some people come to me and they get all like concerned and worried. They're like, you know, I just don't feel like that the church is the home team in America anymore. And maybe we're not, but you know what? There are countries across the globe where the church has never been the home team. And yet the church continues to grow. We shouldn't be surprised that the church is being attacked. And what Revelation is teaching the suffering church is this, just because there's opposition doesn't mean you're defeated. Just because you experience opposition now doesn't mean that you are defeated because the middle of the story isn't the end of the story. And we have to continue to live in the middle of the story with the end in mind. That's why when John is exiled on the island of Patmos, remember we mentioned this last week, He's the last apostle living. All the other apostles have been killed for their faith and they wanted to kill John, but they knew that that would just turn him into a martyr. So they exiled him to an island prison called Patmos. They removed him from the church and he's on this island prison while the churches that he ministered to are suffering. And while he is on Patmos, Jesus appears to him and gives him a vision that he wants him to write down and send to the churches. And look at how John opens up this letter he's going to send to the churches. He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice 
what this book is all about. This book is all about Jesus. Jesus is the central topic and subject of this book. It is from him. It is for Jesus' people. He is the narrator of the story, and he is triumphant throughout it. He is what the book of Revelation is all about. Don't get so caught up in all the signs and symbols that you miss Jesus. Because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word revelation is a Greek word that means to uncover, to pull back, to unveil. It's actually a compound Greek word that means to pull back the veil or the curtain. And what Jesus is doing for John and for the church is he is saying, don't just look around and see the world around you and think that that's all that there is. Pull back the curtain, pull back the veil, and see the greater reality, and live for that greater reality. And you know what the greater reality is? It's Jesus. And listen to how Jesus identifies himself in Revelation chapter one. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I am the Alpha and the Omega, meaning I am the beginning and the end. I'm the one that started all this. I'm the one that's gonna bring it to a close. I am the Almighty. I am the one who is in total control. And when you look around at the world, at times it may look as if that evil is winning, but it's all happening with me on the throne. I am still in control. I am allowing for it to happen for a season in order for my purposes to be carried out. But I'm the one that's gonna bring all this to an end and I am the one who will be left standing. And those who are with me will be standing with me for all eternity that's the hope that we have and that's why in the middle of the story we've got to continue to look behind the curtain and see what the world can't see see Jesus on his throne because when you don't see what you're supposed to see it gets you into some trouble most of you guys probably know what this is right here it's a side viewed mirror this actually came off the truck of one of our staff members. I'm not going to tell you the story behind that. But anyway, this is the driver's side mirror. But if you were to have a passenger side, you know that on the passenger side mirror, there's this little message at the bottom of it. By law, by regulation, they have to put it on there. Objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Because the passenger mirror is a convex mirror, which means that it gives you a wider view but your depth perception is distorted so that you can have something in view, but it might be a lot closer than what it appears on, in the mirror. And I think this is the message of Revelation. When we look at everything that's going on, when we take a wide picture of everything that's going on in our world today and we see all the sin and all the evil and all the darkness, yeah, we know Jesus is still there, that Jesus is still with us, but he seems a lot smaller than he actually is. And what Revelation is telling us is Jesus is bigger than what the world is telling us. And he's closer than what the enemy wants for us to believe. He's bigger than all the sin and all the heartache and all the suffering and all the pain that we see around us. He's bigger than he appears and he is closer than what our enemy wants for us to believe. He is with us. And when you keep your eyes on him, it changes how you will live. But when you take your eyes off him, it will also affect how you live. And that's what we see happening to some of the churches that John was familiar with and Jesus tells John to write to. So remember, Revelation is a letter. It's a letter written to seven literal churches that existed in the first century world. 
Here's what Jesus tells John. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These were all seven real churches that existed in real cities in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Now, there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor in this day and age. So why just seven? I mean, there were more churches across the Roman Empire that were suffering than just these seven. So why these seven? Well, remember, Revelation is written in the apocalyptic genre. And in apocalyptic literature, symbols are important, especially numbers. Normally, when you see a number in an apocalyptic letter or genre, literature, it means something. And the number seven means wholeness or completeness. See, what Jesus is doing is he has chosen seven churches that John was familiar with that would represent as a whole the suffering church. So that throughout history, any church that is suffering, any church that is going through trials and tribulations, any church that is going through rough periods would be able to relate to what Jesus says to these seven churches and there would be application for them. And so if you're ever suffering, read through what John says to these seven churches, that Jesus told him to write to these seven churches because there's something in there for you and there's something in there for me. Because even though these, this letter was going to be sent to these seven churches, it wasn't going to just stay with them. It was going to be passed around to all churches and we are still reading it today. And what we discover as Jesus addresses these seven churches is that some of these Christians living in the first century world had started to take their eyes off Jesus. And because they had taken their eyes off Jesus, they had begun to underestimate him. See, at the beginning of Revelation 1, we get this big picture of Jesus, this cosmic picture of Jesus. We studied that last week. And then when we get to chapter 4, we're going to be taken to the throne room of heaven. And that's going to be awesome. We're going to look at that next week. But in chapters 2 and 3, we kind of get this break in between all the pyrotechnics that are going on in the book of Revelation. And we just get direct letters from Jesus to these churches. Why? Because the church is on Jesus' heart and mind. And he wants to speak directly to them. And what we discover is, as Jesus writes to these churches, is that even though that the church is on Jesus' mind, some of these churches, they're not focused on him. A.W. Tozer writes this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And when your mental picture of God is too small, when your mental picture of Jesus is too small, it will affect your daily life. You will do things that you wouldn't normally do if you saw Jesus clearly. And that's what's going on in some of these churches these churches have shrunk Jesus down in their theological dryers to where he is much smaller than he actually is. And here's the result. To the first church that Jesus writes to, it's a church at Ephesus. And we don't have time to read everything and all these, letter, and all these uh, messages that Jesus gives to the churches, but I'm doing an overview. I encourage you to go back and read it later, but just stick with me for this overview. If you were to read through what Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus, what we discover is Ephesus, the church there, had exchanged their relationship with Jesus for religious routine. Now, the church at Ephesus was doing a lot right. 
In fact, when you look in Revelation chapter two, listen to how Jesus begins what he wants to say to the church at Ephesus. He compliments them. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I mean, imagine if you were receiving a letter directly from Jesus and Jesus said that about you or Jesus said that about our church. How great would that be for Jesus to give you such a compliment? That would be awesome. But then verse four would have ruined their day because look at what he says in verse four. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. See, the church at Ephesus, they were active They were meeting as the church. They were going through the motions. They were having worship services. They were taking communion. They were putting money in the offering. They were going out and working at the food pantry and clothing closet and all that kind of stuff. They were going through the motions of religion. But they were doing it more out of obligation or tradition rather than love for Jesus. And Jesus says this is something they need to repent of. Because yes, they have been loyal, but their loyalty is based on obligation rather than love. And we know that a healthy relationship requires not just loyalty, but also love. See, when I married Allison, I didn't marry the institution of marriage. I married Allison. And so, yes, I want her to be loyal to me and I want to be loyal to her, but I want more than that. I want for us to live in a loving relationship so that we love one another Because that love is what's going to carry us through and that's gonna make us more loyal to one another. And if I was just in a marriage where somebody was loyal to me because they had to because they loved the institution of marriage and that's what the institution tells them to do, that's not gonna be a very healthy marriage, is it? You wanna have that love. And what Jesus here is saying, hey, you are coldly efficient in serving me. But there's no passion. There's no desire for me. It's just going through the motions. It's just obligation. And Jesus says this is something that the church needs to repent of because activity for God is not a substitute for the active work of God within you. And a lot of times what we do in the church is we substitute activity for God and we think that that's enough. We substitute that for God actively working in us. And so when somebody comes and says, is your relationship with God what it should be? We say, well, yeah, because I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. Yes, but where is your love for Jesus at? Because there's a difference. You know, I talk to a lot of church leaders that tell me, you know, we just wish we'd get our church to serve more or give more or pray more or worship more or whatever. And they go through all this stuff. And so what church leaders will often do is they will design some series about worship or about giving or uh, about serving or whatever. And that's fine. We need to disciple people on all those issues. Don't misunderstand me. But sometimes we miss the root cause. The root problem is that churches sometimes have fallen out of love with Jesus. And because the love isn't there, they're they're not doing those things. Because when you are truly in love with Jesus, you will serve more. You will give more. You will worship more. You will pray more. You will do all the things that Jesus is asking you to do because of your love for him that continues to grow. Love is at the root or should be at the root of everything that we do for Jesus. And the church at Ephesus, they had fallen out of love with him. 
And Jesus says, you better change or I'm going to remove your candlestick. But they weren't the only ones that had lost sight of Jesus or maybe had the wrong picture of Jesus. We're introduced to two more churches, the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira. And these churches, we find out, were sliding down the slippery slope of compromise. What's interesting is when we read about these two churches, we find out that they were located in cities that were known for blatant sin and immorality. In fact, to one of these churches, the church of Pergamum, Jesus says this, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. How would you like to live there, okay? I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, okay? They were living in Sin City, okay? That's where they were. And yet what's interesting to me is Jesus never once tells these churches that these Christians that they need to get out of that city. He never says, okay, I know that you're living in Sin City, so you better get out of there. No, because Jesus expects his church not to run from the darkness, but to infiltrate the darkness with his light. He wants his church where the darkness is so that we will transform it and change it. And yet, instead of these churches changing the culture, the culture was changing them. Rather than them changing the culture, they started to reflect the culture because they thought it was just easier to compromise. They thought it was easier just to go along with the culture and get along than to actually try to change it. But buffet-style Christianity doesn't cut it. You can't pick and choose what you want to obey and leave other stuff on the side because all that does is leave an opening for Satan to work. You see, Satan would rather erode our faith with compromise than attack it directly with persecution. Now, don't misunderstand me. Satan will use persecution. He loves to use the front door of persecution, and he will do that, but he would rather use the side door of compromise because the front door of persecution sets off alarms, and people are like, oh, wait, persecution's coming. Everybody can see it. But the side door of compromise is where he can sneak in. And if he can get you to compromise just little things here and there, They don't get you to compromise a few more things and a few more things and a few more things until eventually you're further away from Jesus than you ever wanted to be and he is winning the battle of your heart. And sadly, many Christians have wandered away from Jesus and not even consciously realized it because they've just been giving in to these little temptations to compromise over time. And that's what Satan wants our culture to do to us. Why do you think the culture is always trying to get us to move with it? It's always trying to get us to change our moral standards, to fit what the culture believes. It wants for us to fit in, and if we don't fit in with what the culture believes is right, then we are called names, and we're considered antiquated and backward and all that kind of stuff. Why do you think that the culture continues to want the church to try to fit with its standards? It's because that's what Satan wants. And Jesus says to these churches in Revelation 2.18, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He says, my eyes are like blazing fire because I see what's going on. You might be fooling everybody else with your compromise. I see what's going on. You're not hiding it from me. And then he says, and my feet are like burnished bronze, meaning I am immovable. I don't shift with the culture. I don't move from my place. I don't change. My foundation is secure and I cannot be toppled over. I cannot be knocked over. I will not fall down. I am standing now and I will stand for all eternity and eventually everything else is going to be destroyed. But the one thing that will be standing is me on my throne and my people who are with me. And so are you going to be standing with him? 
Because if you keep just moving around with the culture, you're gonna get pushed further and further away from the one who has feet like burnished bronze. Matt Proctor, who's president of Ozark Christian College, he said this one time in a sermon. He says, when you declaw the lion of Judah and turn him into a warm and fuzzy household pet, who's to stop you from living however you want? And I think that's what these churches have done. Their picture of Jesus was so small, they weren't intimidated by him anymore. They didn't live in reverent fear of him anymore. They thought they could push him around a little bit. But when your picture of Jesus is what it should be, you will not offend him with your blatant sin. Now, I'm not saying that you won't ever mess up. We all mess up. See, it's not a, you're not a hypocrite if you try to live for Jesus and you mess up. You're a hypocrite when you mess up and you act like that you didn't when you know you did. You're a hypocrite when you stumble. When you stumble and you act like it's not a big deal when you know it is. You're not a hypocrite when you stumble because we all stumble. I stumble all the time. I'm not perfect. I don't pretend to be perfect. I mess up all the time. I wish I didn't, but I do because I'm human and I need the grace of God just like anybody. We all are going to stumble. Stumbling does not make you a hypocrite if you're still following Jesus. What makes you a hypocrite is when you stumble and you wanna act like it's not a big deal or pretend like you didn't do it when you know better. And that's what this church is doing. They're compromising and they know it's wrong, but they're just kind of going along to get along. And when your picture of Jesus is too small, you're always one step away from compromise because you just don't see him as big and powerful and authoritative as he really is. There's two more churches that Jesus has some harsh words for, and that's the church at Sardis and Laodicea, because they had settled for casual Christianity. They had settled for being Christian-ish rather than full-fledged Christians. Listen to what Jesus says to the church at Sardis. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. See, churches die long before they ever shut their doors. Christians, their spiritual lives die long before we ever publicly reject Jesus. It's because we allow for Satan to erode our faith over time. And we get to the point where we're just stagnant. But Jesus expects his people to be always growing. He expects his people to be on the move. Jesus also says to the church at Laodicea, he says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Nothing turns Jesus' stomach more than a fence rider. Nothing turns Jesus' stomach more than somebody who is lukewarm in their faith who's not serious about their faith, who just treats it like a hobby. And the reason why Laodicea was in this place, well, Jesus tells us, look at what he goes on to tell them. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now you may have heard that verse before, but typically when we hear that verse, it's like at an invitation time. And some preacher will say, hey, if you don't know Jesus, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking and he wants to come in. If you'll let him come in, then you can receive salvation. That's when we hear this verse quoted. But I want you to notice, originally when Jesus said this, he wasn't saying it to unbelievers. He was saying it to Christians. He was saying it to the church at Laodicea, people who had already accepted him as Lord. That's who he was saying it to. And what he's saying is, you guys are meeting and you're having church services, but I'm on the outside of those church services. I'm on the outside of the door knocking, wanting to get in, but you're doing your thing without me. And if you would just let me in, I would come in and I would have fellowship with you. And we could do great things together and you could live for your greater purpose, but you've pushed me out. 
Because that's what casual Christianity does. See, when we underestimate Jesus, we'll settle for what's predictable over what's possible. And that's what Sardis and Laodicea were doing. They were just settling for what's predictable, doing the same old thing, just kind of wasting their time, buying their time. And Jesus wanted so much more for them. And the same is true for us. Jesus doesn't want us to settle for what's predictable. He wants to do what we see as impossible, but that is possible with him. Now, I've mentioned only five of the seven churches. There are two more, and these other two, Jesus says nothing negative about. One of those churches is the church of Philadelphia. And I want you to notice what Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia. He says this, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. See, I know you don't have all the resources. I know you have little strength. I know you're being attacked right now, but you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. And because of that, I am continuing to give you an open door so that you can continue to do kingdom work for me, so you can continue to live for your greater purpose, so you can continue to see God's work in your midst like you never thought possible. I'm continuing to give you an open door, not because you have all the money and all the wealth and all the resources and all the status. No, I'm going to give you an open door, continue to give you an open door because you have not denied my name and you have been faithful to me. You've kept your focus where it needs to be and that's on me. And when you have a clear picture of Jesus, you will continue to live for him and he will continue to give you open door after open door after open door of opportunity. And that doesn't mean that suffering won't ever happen. In fact, there's another church, the church at Smyrna. And this church was suffering a lot. But yet listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus says, you're suffering and you're gonna keep suffering. He doesn't say that, oh, if you're faithful to me, then all your suffering is gonna be removed. See, some people read the book of Revelation and they're searching for a way to escape suffering. Jesus never promises that. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, didn't he? No, what the book of Revelation promises is you will suffer in the middle of the story. But when you stay focused on me, I'll be with you through your suffering And just because you're experiencing suffering now in the middle doesn't mean your story will end that way. Because it will end with you being victorious with me. See, God uses short-term pain to bring about long-term gain. That's the promise that we have. Now, here's the thing. I know Jesus has said some harsh things to some of these churches, but I want you to know, and Jesus even says this, if you read through these seven messages to these seven churches, you will see that Jesus says, I don't say this to punish you. I don't want to punish you. I say this because I love you, and those that I love, I discipline because Jesus wants so much more for us. And to every single one of these churches, Jesus says this, to him who overcomes. You know why? Because even though some of these churches have taken their eyes off him, even though some of these churches have underestimated him, even some of these church, even though some of these churches have a mental picture of Jesus way too small, Jesus hasn't given up on them. Jesus still loves them. Jesus still has big plans for them. Jesus still believes in them. And Jesus still believes in his church today. He still believes in me. He still believes in you. Jesus believes in us. 
And right now you may have taken your eyes off Jesus. Or right now Jesus may be standing on the outside of your life, knocking, trying to get in. Right now you may have compromised your faith. You may have blown it big time. You may have messed up. And you may feel like that you aren't worthy of Jesus. But Jesus is looking at you and saying, you can overcome this if you will just turn back to me. Because there's nothing that you can't overcome when I am with you. That's the promise that he gives to these seven churches because he isn't finished with them and he has a greater purpose for their lives. And ultimately, what Jesus wants is for him to be united for all eternity with his bride. He doesn't want to lose any of those he loves and that includes you. When Allison and I were engaged in the months leading up to our wedding day, we had a lot of stress going on and you know, stuff for the wedding is happening. Weddings can be stressful if you haven't experienced that. And also she was wrapping up her bachelor's degree in college and so she was stressed because of that and she had a part-time job and there was some stuff there. I had just started a new ministry so I was full-time preaching minister at a church that had a lot of issues and I was working on my master's degree in grad school so that was busy and we were separated. We were living in two different towns at the time so there was just a lot of stuff happening. And at one point we had watched this TV show where there's a couple getting married and as they got closer to their wedding day they would count down and they would say just five more days baby that was their saying or just three more days baby they just kept saying that over and over again now I don't call Allison baby a whole lot I do every now and then on special occasions but you know I don't call her baby a whole lot but in those months and weeks leading up to our wedding day we would talk on the phone and I would tell her after we would talk about everything that's going on that's stressful and chaotic and whatever we would always end by saying just one more month baby just three more weeks, baby. And we would laugh, you know. One more week, baby. Three more days, baby. Two more days, baby. And on our wedding day, I was getting ready with all my groomsmen in the church offices. And Allison was getting ready with her bridesmaids and some of the Sunday school classes. And apparently it takes... Um, Men a lot less time to get ready than women. And so uh, the groomsmen, we, we were done, and we were just goofing off and, you know, just waiting. And so there was some church stationery there in the office, and I wrote Allison a note and asked the photographer to take it to her. And this is what I wrote to her. I said, hey, Allison, I love you, and I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you. It's our day, baby. Love you, Chad. And I think this is what Jesus wants you to look forward to. Because right now there's a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, a lot of chaos in this world. But there's coming a day when we are going to be, be reunited with him. And on that day, it will be our day with him. And as he takes us as his bride for all eternity, there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more heartache. We will be with Jesus and all the pressure and all the persecution and all the stuff that stressed us out will all be removed. The consequences of sin will forever be gone and we will be with Jesus. It will be our day with him. And Jesus is looking at us now and saying, hold on, don't give up, don't give in. Our day is coming. It's just a little while longer. Hang on, our day will be here soon enough. Don't give up on our day because of the temporary pain that you're experiencing now. We're gonna get through this. Just hang on a little bit longer because our day is coming. And so my prayer for you is that as we live in the middle of the story, remember the middle is not the end. Our day is coming. And as long as we keep focused on the end of the story, Jesus will help us get there. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you so much for this moment that we've had to open up your word and study it. And I just pray, Father, that as we continue to live in this world in the middle of your story, that we would remember the end, knowing that our day with you is coming, and that we will be reunited with you for all eternity. And on that day, everything else that we've experienced, well, it will be a forgotten memory as we live with you forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.